Welcome to the Ink and Think Hour, where two best friends discuss cartoons like they're high art because they are. Episode 3, Fantasia. Which is, I will say, an extremely long movie. Two hours and ten minutes long without the intermission, the 15 minute intermission. That they seemingly cut from our version. Uh, which was too bad, but... Yeah, I, I actually like when movies have in, um, intermissions. I wish that was still a thing. I think that makes it feel a little more like you're going out to the theater or something. Yeah, and especially if you're thinking about it in terms of an orchestra, you would have your 15 minute intermission. Mm-hmm. And this this movie feels like it has much more in common with an art gallery and a concert hall than it does a traditional movie. Yeah. Which I wasn't mad at. No, I liked it a lot. Yeah, me too. So last time you kind of mentioned that you were curious about how this movie had done yeah. when it came out. And so I took it upon myself to do a little research. So Fantasia is the third feature from the um, animated Disney canon. It was released in 1940, so the same year as Pinocchio. Yes. So it must have been in development around the same time. Um, originally, it was conceived as a comeback um, role for Mickey Mouse. So the way that this went through development was that they Disney wanted to produce a short to up the profitability, I guess, of Mickey Mouse and, because he had been going through a decline in popularity. Um, so the Sorcerer's Apprentice is the was originally just meant to be a short, and then it was getting so expensive that origi- eventually they were like, we need to make this a feature film in order to make money. So, which is I think shows because the the Sorcerer's Apprentice section with Mickey Mouse feels a little it stands out a little bit. It is much different. It feels okay. like a different kind of entity. It feels a little more I don't want to say commercial, but it's it's definitely I think the most accessible to a kid. Yeah, well it also feels like we talked about this a little bit during the movie mm-hmm. is the iconography of Mickey makes him stand out, but I also think he's animated differently yeah. from everything else in the movie. Yeah, it it feels I mean that section I really liked, but mm-hmm. it does feel ambitious in a different way. Yeah. So when it came out after going through this development process, of starting as a short and ending up as this anthology movie, which is not the last time that Disney would put out anthology movies. It was critically acclaimed, but it failed to make a profit, partially because World War II meant that they had limited access or no access to European markets. So it was entirely a domestic take. In addition to having a high budget of $2.28 million in 1940. And a large part of that that I thought was interesting was the development of a new sound system called Fantasound that would replicate in theaters what it felt like or sounded like to be at an orchestra. So it's an early kind of surround sound that they dropped $200,000 on developing so that the movie would have this kind of the integrity of a concert, cool. which I thought was really, really cool. But yeah, it was originally released in a Roadhouse show type release. I don't know if you know what Roadhouse shows are. No. Um, it's this early film thing that was popular, especially from the 50s to the 70s. This is an early version um, where they would release movies as limited releases first. And usually it would be this big event where it would be slightly longer. So there was kind of a, a benefit to going because you would see more of the movie. There would be an intermission you would get a souvenir of some kind, like limited edition, usually a program cool. that had like behind the scenes tidbits and stuff like that. Um, and because it was a limited release, it was more of an event. It was doing the roadshow um, circuit. And so it lost money, <laughs> it right. lost money for right. them. By being of... this more prestige event and putting more money into prestige. Yeah, and I think that usually the roadhouse shows, um, movies that did the roadhouse thing would then move on to wide releases, but that was limited. For Disney at this time. Um, one thing that I think is really innovative about it is that it's not just a short being disseminated 
through various series. It's an anthology series that they they string together with, I think, what the thesis of the movie is, which is essentially that animation is as um, essential and artistic an art as classical music. Is is highbrow, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny, when we first started watching this movie, I was thinking the the idea was that borrowing the prestige of the orchestra brought legitimacy to mm-hmm. the art. But I actually, one of the things I was thinking during the first couple, and I actually think I like the first couple of shorts more than some of the later stuff. Okay, interesting. Is that it also felt like they were drawing on the 1940s world of highbrow art. Uh-huh. Um, because we're looking at abstract expressionism. We're looking at sort of like post-Picasso mm-hmm. um, cubism. Like we're looking at this form of art that asks us to think abstractly about color and shape. And those first couple of shorts really do that in yeah. like a beautiful, beautiful way. Mm-hmm. The first half is much more abstract. And in fact, so the movie opens with um, our master of ceremonies, Deems Taylor, announcing that he's going to introduce the composer um, whose name I wrote down is Leopold Stokowski, playing mostly with the um, Philadelphia Orchestra that he's going to introduce a series of musical pieces that features music inspired by animators. So the animators have been inspired by these various musical pieces to create three different types of shorts, one with a definite story, the second is music that evokes a series of pictures along a theme, and then the last is um, music that exists only for its own sake, which is that more abstract style that I think you mentioned we see in the first half. And there's eight altogether. It's a series of eight anthology stories. And it's interesting, actually, that they they start with the more abstract. Yeah, because I was going to say, I actually think I like the second half better. So this will be a useful, hopefully cool conversation. It's funny because I sort of predicted that, given that I really like abstract art and yeah. you really like concrete art. Yeah, I think that's fair. And so I, I sort of anticipated in thinking about what I liked about this series mm-hmm. that we would have this sort of dialogue yeah, yeah. about... Not to say that I didn't like the first half. I actually really, really liked Fantasia a lot. I will say I don't think it's the type of thing that I would want to rewatch often. By design, I don't think it's really for no. that. No, and I mean, by design, the idea was that they were going to release the Fantasia every once in a while. Yeah. Um, and it would be updated with new pieces and new mm-hmm. work. And it sort of invites that. It's, yeah. It's, the, it's going to the orchestra, right? Yeah. Where we're going to see something, or hear something, rather, that mm-hmm. is similar in tone, but different. Yeah, I agree. So um, there are eight different um, animated pieces that are strung together by this framing device of Deans Taylor, sometimes spoiling for us what's going to happen. But um, in the way that if you go to the opera, they have the, or if you go to the ballet, they'll they'll tell you the story in a program so that you can follow yeah, it. You've got a synopsis that tells yeah, you Yeah, so it, again, it felt very theatrical. It, it also feels, um, for me, in terms of storytelling, actually very useful because it, it gives me as an audience member a sense of like, Okay, I know approximately how long this is going to be, uh-huh. and I'll know halfway through what halfway through is. I do like that too. And on the one hand, it sounds like that means that you're eager for it to be over. But I just kind of like knowing how long I'm going to be investing in something. Yeah, and and knowing 
sort of when one thing is going to begin and one thing is going to end. Yeah. And I think especially when you're thinking about orchestral music, it's nice to have that delineation. Uh, otherwise, you're just an uninitiated listener like me might mm-hmm. not quite understand what's happening in when things change so suddenly. Yeah. And I think there are people who are really, really intelligent and educated about music and things like leitmotifs. Leitmotif? I'm actually not sure. That's one of those things where I've always read that word. I've never heard it pronounced. Right. Um, and musical movements and the the particular meaning to various changes and the the particularities of the notes and, and I'm like not as chord, educated chord resolution yeah and like I'm not as educated in that way I feel like I love classical music but my appreciation of it is very intuitive mm-hmm. it's very I like this because it it makes me feel a particular emotion mm-hmm. and that's how mu- classical music works for me I don't think that you need to be super educated to enjoy the the feeling of it and the sound of it i think that it's perfectly accessible to like an everyday joe like me yeah and i think that again sort of drawing on that that idea that the cartoon is drawing on the prestige of the orchestra uh-huh. um the other thing that i was thinking at the beginning of the movie was this is kind of like the way that modern orchestras play the soundtracks to popular films yeah where it simultaneously is bringing in a new audience by saying this highbrow thing mm-hmm. can be interpreted through a more lowbrow lens and like it should be and can be made accessible mm-hmm. outside of that sort of educated yeah uh, and it's interesting to think of this movie in 1940 being like we've had kind of roughly the first decade of of cinema sound because mm-hmm. I, th- I think i looked it up and the jazz singer was yeah. 27 okay so roughly a decade of 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 soundtrack to film being a thing right um and having a language and and a a medium so it's interesting that this movie is kind of drawing on all three of those things yeah and it's really exploring what animation can do yeah i really really liked it so should we go through each of the 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 sections the vignettes yeah i think so so the first one that's introduced to us is interestingly the most abstract by far Mm. and i think to be honest if you are the type of person that has started fantasia and was worried that it was going to be all like this i can kind of understand how two hours of this would be a lot i i kind of think that it's smart actually to put it at the beginning because it's it's the most intellectually intensive it's asking you to do the most in terms of making meaning on your own. Sure. And I and I think that if that is something they wanted to explore, which clearly it was, mm-hmm. it's good to put that at the beginning. Yeah. Because the work is over by the end of this first vignette, really. Yeah. That that hard work of trying to draw meaning out of abstract sound and And then you're set up for the rest of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And you kind of know how you're going to be watching mm-hmm. this. So this one in particular, um, number one, is Toccata and Fugue in D Minor by Bach. Um, And this is one of the ones they call absolute music, which is music that exists solely for its own sake, does not have a narrative. But the way that they animate this one is by animating the feeling and the sounds Mm -hmm. of the orchestra um, in line with all of these abstract images. So the sound of the strings and the sound of the trumpets and the horn section and the sound of the harp. I really thought it was cool... The way that they sort of deconstructed the instrument. We see the instruments playing for the first bit of the song mm-hmm. in shadow mostly and with color poured on them, like light color poured on them. And then suddenly we're brought into this abstract world, but we don't lose the instrument. We just see parts like the when the violins are playing, you just see the ends of the bows. Yeah, it's, and it's like a, that that motion, that swift motion upwards is what's animated. And it's that it it's a shape that's reminiscent of 
the instrument. Later we get those double bass, and at first I thought they were bridges, mm-hmm. but it's just sort of the, the break halfway through a double bass. Yeah. With just the strings hanging on it. Like yeah. It, uh, it sort of does a good job of melding that abstract with the concrete. Yeah, I think that's true. That being said, I don't have a ton to say about this one, because I think it's a fairly simple concept on paper yeah and it's mostly just really cool to watch i think it's cool to watch and i think again i think it's giving you the language to start thinking about how you're going to watch the rest of the yeah film. that this is about how how music is visualized mm-hmm. and how music makes us think about certain images and how music is a really useful tool for reflection where whenever i go to a concert which is not often to be mm-hmm. honest but whenever i go sometimes i'll just sit there and, and like my thoughts will drift away and i'm not necessarily paying intense attention to the music but the music is is like sending me on a mental journey where i'm just thinking about all of these various things and it's really therapeutic and i really enjoy it because it's the only, one of the only times where you're just asked to sit and shut up and feel yeah not to go too far on a tangent but it made me think of this thing that's been really popular on reddit lately where people are coming to the realization that they can't see like visualize things in their imagination mm-hmm. and that there's some sort of like weird blockage that they understand the language around visualizing things mm-hmm. in your head as metaphorical yeah and not as literal and i kept thinking like maybe i'm one of those people while yeah. we were doing this because i kept being like no like these visuals I could never imagine this visual Mm -hmm. to go with this sound where like I would be much more apt to think about like I would be looking at the the orchestra Mm -hmm. seeing where the sound was coming from. Right. Um, That's so interesting because I feel like I'm the opposite where I'm totally disembodied from the orchestra and I'm just thinking abstractly about things. Like I think that what's cool about this is that it puts me in a place where I can think abstractly. Right. And I can think about like even if it's if it's like a, a song that's meant to evoke like the countryside, I'll be partially thinking about the countryside, but also that will just lead me into all of these stray thoughts about yeah. my life and what I'm feeling right now and what I'm thinking and who I am. And it's very meditative for me. And I like that idea in a world that is so visual, mm-hmm. that like that it gives you the opportunity to experience something minus the visual. Yeah. I mean, this one is all about visuals, but yeah. I think that that's really ultimately it's making a claim that i think disney still holds to today that music and animation are kind of made for each other yeah and that really the only way that you can visualize something like music is through a medium that is capable of of being just as abstract and emotional as animation and that is not tied to the realities of the world Mm -hmm. because i i partway through i kept thinking like there's no way they could do a fantasia now with cg animation yeah and have it be as effective no because cg has a weight that traditional animation doesn't have it it feels more grounded in real Mm -hmm. especially when we get to some of the later things where it's just it's just an image yeah and the image is like kind of related to things it's Mm dreamlike yeah so i I think that the toccata and fugue first one is is really the most abstract the most simply about the visuals mm-hmm. and the visuals aren't really anything they're just kind of shapes and color they're, and they're impressions yeah they're impressions i think that's a good way of putting it from there on i think we get more concrete with the storytelling yeah. this yeah. is by far the most abstract. Um, abstract and i think probably demands the most patience yeah i think that there's in, there's infinite reward if you're kind of patient with it and, and let it Mm-hmm. ease you into what's happening in this movie the second one we get is the nutcracker suite by tchaikovsky 
who is my absolute favorite. I think this was my favorite of really? the vignettes. Uh, yeah. Interesting, because I partially for me, I know I'm biased because I like I absolutely love Tchaikovsky. I listen to him all the time when I'm writing or studying. Again, I am not an expert in classical music, but there's such a passion and a everything about his music for me is so intense. Like it's like I can feel what he was feeling. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is something infinitely beautiful about the idea that this man that has been dead for a really long time that I can I can feel him through his music. And it's mm-hmm. a kind of strange spectral immortality or spectral hand that reaches forth through time and just like takes me. And I, I love his music so much. So what they do for the Nutcracker Suite is essentially they craft this story of the seasons as seen through the perspectives of the fairies that are turning the seasons. Mm-hmm. So we have fairies pollinating flowers. At the end, we have fairies that are skating on frost to make to freeze over the water. We have this one scene in the middle that I really loved where these Russian-esque dandelions and flowers are having this boisterous spring dance. Which just made me so happy. I was like, a, I was like a puddle of happiness during I, that scene. I think that's why I enjoyed it so much. Is it, it does it does the thing for me that I really like about what animation can do. That it takes the real and the natural, mm-hmm. um, and turns it on its head and like makes you think. Sort of, it brings out the wonder. Yeah. In in the natural world, and I just I just loved every aspect of that i think the scene where the fairies are putting the dewdrops on the spider web yeah like it's just so beautiful mm-hmm. and has at first i had the sense of menace of like oh no they're going to land on this and get stuck but they don't mm-hmm. and i just had a moment of like this is also beautiful mm-hmm. um and this thing that i've sort of been trained to think of as scary and probable even in entrapment. episode one when we were like oh all these cobwebs we need to get rid of in the dwarves house yeah it's, it, it is interesting that something like this can make you appreciate I hope this doesn't come across as pretentious. For me, it's really kind of simple where it's like there is something beautiful simply about the image of a dewdrop on a on a web because it's these different parts of nature coming together to create this image. Yeah. And it's just like there's a lot of average beauty in our everyday world that something like animation and music together can force you to just think about and consider. Yeah. And I I don't know. I think that's the kind of poetry I like. That's the kind of art I like is is something that sort of gives you that impression and and in a way that is surprising and unexpected. Like the dandelion fluffs turning into dancers. Yeah, with their giant billowing dress. Gra- billowing gowns. Yeah, like, that are, that's dandelion fluff. Yeah. yeah. Like I just, it, it's the kind of thing that I'm like, right, this is this thing that I've been taught is beautiful mm-hmm. um, and that fits into sort of that majestical beauty of the ballet and of the opera and of the orchestra. Mm-hmm reimagined through nature in this surprising way yeah it's well it's the same thing that a lot of the romantics are trying to do in their poetry right like wordsworth writing poems about daffodils simply to get you to slow down and think about how beautiful a daffodil is and how lucky we are that we have this great majestic world around us that we really don't appreciate because we're all you know trying to survive in in our modern world whether that's economically whether that's spiritually Mm -hmm. we all have different ways that we're trying to survive I, I loved this. I thought it was so beautiful. I just love that it starts with the dance of the sugar plum fairy. Mm-hmm. And they decided, you know what, we're going to drop all of the nutcracker stuff. Yeah. But this is still a fairy. Mm-hmm. Um, like, we're going to start from this idea. Yeah. And the 
and let that guide the movement. The other thing I was thinking is the fairies in the fall sequence are using their wands to turn everything gold. Mm -hmm. And I kept thinking, like, this is the iconography that eventually becomes Tinkerbell. That eventually becomes Tinkerbell coming over the castle. I was thinking even Thumbelina later, which is a different company. But still. But uh, for me, in the way that Jiminy Cricket sort of becomes a symbol for Disney, Mm -hmm. this movement of the fairies becomes a symbol for Disney. I think you're right. And I think for me, like part of what I loved about this was it reminded me what I like about Disney, Mm -hmm. which is that it takes the average and everyday and makes it magical. Right. And it's cool to think about something like the Romantic Poets doing kind of a similar thing with poetry. Yeah. Because they're always trying to like evoke the sublime in their poetry, the idea that the world around you is wondrous and larger than you can comprehend. Yeah. And animation, especially in this instance, is doing kind of the same thing. Yeah. And I think for me, that's why I liked the sort of earlier abstract over the later, more concrete ones, Mm -hmm. is because it gives you that sense of wonder divorced from the real or like barely touching the real Mm -hmm. I guess and that for me is so exciting because it doesn't ask me to think about the real physics of the world yeah I think this one is the best at marrying concrete and abstract yeah concrete is it has a clear story and a narrative and abstract is it's really just trying to get you to think about impressions Mm -hmm. and feelings I think this one probably marries those two the best yeah I will I also wrote down that there is an extended scene with a lot of seductive, very feminized fish. Yes. Uh, and I just kept thinking, like, oh, Tchaikovsky's vision when he wrote this. <laughs> Extremely gay Tchaikovsky yes. <laughs> would love these sexy fish. I kind of think he would. In the, like, in the, like, the queer love for, like, exaggerated beauty and, like, that weirdness. I guess that's true. Um, divorced from sexuality. Yeah. In the way that, like, Geppetto's fish cleo Mm -hmm. is like weirdly sexual yeah like is constantly looking for kisses from everybody has eyeshadow and lipstick yeah Yeah. i just like i love that that sort of continues in this disney's tradition of sexy fish (laughs) (laughs) in a way that i think just makes them beautiful like i guess as as a gay man like i do have that that same sort of like it's not it's sexy, but in a way that is kind of mocking sexuality. Sure. That is not asking you to be horny for these fish. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, to be fair, yeah. I don't think that straight guys are sitting in the audience being like, damn, something for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's that's fair. Um, also, though, I think um, there's one scene with some mushrooms that, that feel yeah. very Orientalist. Yes. Um, which, it's not really too ghoulish. No, it's, it's mostly just the strange association. It it feels like, um, and there are a couple of places in this. Something that surprised me about it is how uh, how often we saw Russian composers mm-hmm. uh, transmuted into these animations. Yeah, uh, and it just makes me think about sort of the Russian lens on Orientalism, which to me feels less terrified and sort of racist in that way of like this is a scary other. And more like appreciating the beauty of this, the other. Yeah, because I, I hesitate to like to say that this is absent of, of caricature. But sure. at the same time, it's this beautiful dance that's part of the natural world mm-hmm. that it seems to be inspired by that culture rather yeah. than being degrading towards that culture. Well, it's like we, we later on we get an arabesque mm-hmm. um, and it still has that sort of like caricature of and like 
not from with the fish no um it's not in this one it's maybe in the bacchanal like eventually we Mm. get in one of the later scenes we get these women dancing to like a vaguely arabic sounding Mm -hmm. which is part of that sort of Russian tradition. Yeah, it's certainly true of a lot of Tchaikovsky's ballets that there are a lot of musical pieces dedicated to the the Chinese princess dance or mm. the Spanish princess dance or the Russian princess dance. That that kind of sense of kingdoms coming together, and which it, doesn't necessarily mean it's wholly good or wholly bad, just no, that it's it's a product of its time. Yeah, and it to me at least feels like it is acknowledging the beauty of sort of folk dances mm-hmm. um it, it's maybe not giving giving those people the opportunity to show their own cultures yeah but at least is not making fun of or terrified of it's appreciative it's yeah. not attempting to be degrading or mocking yeah unlike another scene later on yeah <laughs> so this section i really loved i thought it was beautiful and I know that I would have really loved this as a kid, too, because mm-hmm. um, I, as a like, girl that loved princesses and fairies and things like that. It also, not to tangent again, but uh-huh. I, like, I loved the Nutcracker as a kid. Like, I, mm-hmm. we had an animated version of the Nutcracker mm-hmm. uh, and then had a couple of filmed versions of different productions. Cool. And I would just, like, watch them. Like, that was my Christmas tradition. Oh, I just loved the Nutcracker. The music is so great. It's so good. And it... There's something nice about the the relationship between the Nutcracker and animation for me that it's like so solidified in my mind. Mm-hmm. And it like the nice thing about watching this was it kind of brought me back to my childhood and like had me thinking about the animated Nutcracker that I loved so oh, much. Oh, cool! So after that, we have after the Nutcracker suite, we have the third short, which is the Sorcerer's Apprentice. Mm-hmm. Um, the music is by Paul Dukas, and it's based on. Uh, 1797 poem, German oh, poem by called, Goethe. Yeah, Der Zauber Lehrling, which the I'm, Sorcerer's Apprentice. Yeah, which thanks. <laughs> <laughs> translates to the Sorcerer's yeah, Apprentice. Yeah, so it's a German poem. This was one that they refer to as definite music. So it has a, a straightforward story that the music is is evoking mm-hmm. and drawing on because it began as a poem. This is probably the most famous one. Uh, I think in part because it's got Mickey Mouse in yeah. it. Yeah. In part because that is part of the iconography of Disney. Mm-hmm. And it was because it was a comeback for Mickey Mouse. Yeah. It really does become that image of Mickey in the red sleeves with that blue hat was, I think, during the Renaissance, the Disney Renaissance was like the image yeah. that started every Disney movie. Mm-hmm. So do you want to give a summary of this one plot wise? Uh, sure. So... The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Mickey's uh, Mickey Mouse is the apprentice to a sorcerer. Uh, With crazy eyes. He's wonderful. We'll talk about it. So Mickey Mouse is this apprentice to the sorcerer who asks him to carry water from the well into the basement of their home, the dungeon sort of area where they do their magic. Mickey decides that he is going to be lazy, and he's going to look up a spell from the sorcerer's book, and bring to life this broom that is going to do the work for him. Mm -hmm. Uh, Unfortunately, he does not know the counterspell to stop the broom from doing this work for him, and he ends up flooding the entire basement. There ends up being hundreds of brooms. This is an image that I think, even if you are completely unaware of Fantasia, 
you've seen yeah. in pop culture. Like it is just it's so iconic. Yeah, and that that like dun 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 dun, dun is dun, very dun. like um I just I know that music so well even though I I haven't watched this yeah. all and, the way through. And of all of the composers mm-hmm. in in Fantasia, yeah. I think probably for me is the least recognizable. Yeah, interesting. Um, everybody else feels like giants in the world yeah. of orchestral music. And it, that could be, I'm, I'm the same, and that could just be my own gaps. Mm-hmm. Um, because like I said, I'm not a music historian, and I'm not, like my appreciation for classical music is um, what I stumble across. Sure. But I liked this one. This one was fun. It was really bombastic. The design of the wizard is crazy. Just because he's got these giant eyes that are always completely open and his pupils are just like a single dot, but the dot jiggles. It moves everywhere. He's just like, it's he's omniscient, right? He's he can see everything, but that means can't see what Mickey's up to. Well, not until he wakes (laughs) up and comes back down. Yeah, um, but that. But it feels like that's attached to these eyes constantly moving. Yeah. Right? That he's he's surveying everything always. Yeah. And it's this weird, creepy power, almost, mm-hmm. that is threatening. Yeah. And this one felt like kind of a morality tale, too, um, mm-hmm. where it's like, don't shirk your work, or there there will be unforeseen consequences. Yeah. Um, don't delegate seems to be the, <laughs> the thesis. Don't delegate if your work shouldn't be delegated. Yeah, I guess if that's fair. If your work is simple enough that you can do it on your own, mm-hmm. don't delegate. It's almost like don't jockey for power if you don't understand what it's like to work and earn that power, mm-hmm. basically. I really like when the, the water gets so high that it's going out of the windows mm-hmm. and the way that it um, circles like a like a drain. Yeah. And like pulls Mickey in. Yeah. I thought that was a really neat All of the water imagery. animation is really cool. But yeah. Oh, the other thing that I wanted to mention, in the very beginning... The sorcerer is doing magic, and it kind of foreshadows Chernabog in the last vignette. Oh, yeah. Because he pulls up this, like, bat demon-like creature out of out of his skull in the plume, and I was like, oh, this is an evil wizard. But then he turns it into a butterfly. Oh, And it, cool. like, breaks apart into a million little butterflies and comes back down. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just something for me that I was like, this menacing character is not all bad. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if that's like, Mickey can't be apprenticed to an evil wizard. Maybe, yeah. But, but there um, is, he's certainly not like a comforting guy to look at. No, he's <laughs> terrifying. Yeah, he's pretty wild. Um, but he turns this Chernabog character into a butterfly. And mm. I just like, and that moment just struck me. Yeah, yeah. No, this one was, this one I can see definitely um probably being separated from the hole and circulating a lot yeah. more than the others it's it's the most traditional of the of the shorts yeah i don't want to say the least ambitious because it's it's really gorgeously animated and it has like it has a mood and a tone that's very foreboding well, and it precursors the next film dumbo i guess in, so like the pink elephants kind of have that broom breaking up and becoming a bunch of different brooms and moving in that way yeah i don't remember dumbo at all so oh, i actually don't know what you're see. talking about you don't know the pink elephants vaguely scene where he gets drunk and sees like these visions of terrifying elephants all oh, i can man. think about is heffalumps and woozles from winnie the pooh uh not quite that we'll get there okay it's terrifying i'm all right it well good terrified me as a child okay well dumbo is next right yes so. yeah and that's Great. Something to look forward to. More terror. Um, so the next one, number four, is The Rite of 
Spring by Igor Stravinsky. Yay, Stravinsky. I feel like I had a very vocal reaction to this one. You did scream out several times. Yeah, well, just because the, it opens, um, it's explained to us that this original piece of music was written to, quote unquote, express primitive life and to tell the story of the growth of life on Earth. Our master of ceremony says that science, not art, wrote this scenario. So it's science as understood by 1940 in terms of early primordial life evolving into the dinosaurs and then dying out. I thought it was really, really cool. I also, Stravinsky is maybe my favorite classical composer. Okay, cool. I love, and the Rite of Spring has like a fascinating history. It's the one that started a riot. What? Yeah. Oh my God. Okay, tell me all about it. Yeah, the Rite of Spring starts this giant riot. It premieres in Paris. So this is 1914. Stravinsky has left Russia because of the peasant uprising. Mm -hmm. And he's a... He's a noble. So he comes and he's an expatriate in Paris. And it's like, it's this huge bombastic thing that starts with a cannon. And people are made so uncomfortable by the depiction of primitive, quote unquote, life Mm -hmm. that they just like, they start hitting each other. So what were they, whoa, what were they uncomfortable with? Was it the, because it was not a creationist? I'm, I'm not entirely sure what... The, because it, it's it's not um, the right of spring is not really about the creationist story. It's more um, it's more this sense of like this is when life comes back is in spring, mm. um, and it's told through what are essentially a bunch of peasant folk dances. Okay, um, but they represent peasants from far outside of Europe, mm. and I think that people were just like so off put by. Nobody throws riots over classical orchestral music anymore. No, this but this is 1914 Paris. Man, um, what a world! Yeah, no, it's it's fascinating. If well, it's interesting because one of the things I was reading about Disney's adaptation of the Rite of Spring was that he specifically forbade his animators from adding humans into it because mm. he didn't want to anger any creationists. Because he didn't want the the suggestion of evolution to be tied to humans. It was fine to do it to dinosaurs. Right. Um, because the Rite of Spring, the way that they animate it, is that it's entirely um, about... It, we start with kind of like space and the cosmos, and then we go to amoebas developing out into... Of lava. Yeah, out of lava, into aquatic creatures, into dinosaurs on land, into dinosaurs dying off. Yeah. It is fascinating to me that Disney did not want that to bother creationists Uh because the introduction is so vehemently like this is the way things happen Mm -hmm. science is real shut the up (laughs) like it's it's very like but i think key to that is that they're only talking about dinosaurs right they're not talking about humans i guess so it just felt very like it's like having your cake and eating it too really it's trying to have it both ways yeah so this one starts, the first, yeah, that came out of me. I felt like I was my dad at a sporting event during this movie. Because I was just, this part, because I was so excited by just all of the visuals where I was just like, this is great. This is so exciting and weird and character-driven yeah, in a way. Yeah. So it starts with just like this this bevy of volcanoes all interrupting at once and spewing lava in what I can only describe as a volcanic ballet of destruction. And I was just like, yes, yes, this is great. It's very like each spurt is tied to a particular note, yeah. moves in a particular way, and it like it does feel like there are characters because they're tied to different sounds. It's like the primal rage of the earth, mm. like which <laughs> that sounds so pretentious to say, but that's what they're animating. It, it's the earth being angry. And it's this 
ball of molten goo turning into the hard shell that we know as Earth. Yeah. Right? Like, it, it's imagining that at one point there wasn't even rock. It's destruction that prefaces creation. Mm-hmm. That I think the short also ends with destruction that prefaces theoretically more creation. Yeah. But so uh, then we have this evolution of, of amoebas into aquatic life, into dinosaurs. And the rest of the short is just sort of interactions with various dinosaurs animated with incredible detail. Beautiful. Yeah. Very, uh, and Lynn pointed this out there, very Land Before Time. It really feels like an inspiration point for Land Before Time. Also Jurassic Park. Yeah. Because one of the big vignettes is all of these dinosaurs are, are getting along and they're ambling around the forest eating eating plentiful foliage. And then a T-Rex bursts onto the scene to ruin everything. I will say, even though the short is prefaced with this idea that most dinosaurs were vegetarians Mm -hmm. that does not seem to be the case there are several dinosaurs even before the t-rex shows up that are eating other life forms they're not necessarily other dinosaurs but are not definitely not eating plants there is a lot of what i would call dinosaur slander in that opening where he basically is like dinosaurs were terrible lizards that were awful and hateful and especially the T-Rex. Look out for that guy. And I was just like, why don't you let me decide how I feel about these dinosaurs, fella? You, I wrote down a couple things that you yelled at the screen during the, <laughs> during the dinosaur section. One of them was, give me that duck face. Another one, when we were watching a battle between a T-Rex and not a stegosaurus, but something like a stegosaurus that had a bunch of spikes. And giant is... Well, it had like the stegosaurus plates on its back, but... It had spikes on the tail. Yeah, so I don't know specifically what dinosaur that was supposed to be. But you wrote, store up those calcium deposits. And I had to ask you what you meant by that because I was really confused. I was just really excited about, because because this is so tied to evolution, yeah. I was just really excited about the way that this dinosaur had grown bone spikes in its tail to defend itself. <laughs> I, just, I just thought it was so cool to see that, like, Life wanted to live so bad. You nerd. (laughs) I don't know. I thought it was really cool. (laughs) You also wrote, or you also said, which I think encapsulates this conversation, I'm just so proud of nature. (laughs) It's true, though. (laughs) The other thing to get, like, weird and nerdy again Mm -hmm. that, like, really excited me about this was um, when the tectonic plates started moving and we got the earthquake, Uh it felt to me like... The earth has finally cooled and like the lava is trying to bubble up, but there are no plates yet. It's just ground. Uh Uh-huh. And then the pressure builds up so much that we get earthquakes and that's where tectonic plates come from. And Pangea is like splitting apart at the end of the dinosaur's life. And I just like, it was interesting because it made me think about geological evolution. Oh my God, you nerd. I'm very much (laughs) a nerd for this stuff. But interestingly, what they believed in 1940 about what happened to the dinosaurs was it was a bunch of droughts and earthquakes that got them in the end. Yeah, the um, MC describes the uh, the droughts and earthquakes as like a dust bowl. Yeah. Uh, which I think particularly resonates in 1940 in an interesting way because of the, the dust bowl and the drought in the 30s in the west midwest of mm, america that's cool right like the, it's it's damn our, dude that's a neat connection <laughs> yeah 
No, I just, like, there's something interesting about the way that science is read through the lens of the things that are happening yeah. in your world. Right. And if you've just been through a depression and are are approaching a, and are witnessing a war happening overseas, mm-hmm. the idea of being, uh, of scarcity again, which I think we talked about with Snow White, yeah. um, is kind of a prevalent theme in this one. Because there's one of the final scenes that's really, really sad is all the dinosaurs just totally dehydrated wandering through the desert and there is just no foliage left and like fighting over these tiny little puddles of water yeah it's a really upsetting image yeah uh but also like very true to potentially something that could happen it's not um it's also not subtle like the the, one of the last shots of the dinosaurs is their skeletons it's Mm -hmm. very much like this is an extinction we're not gonna let you believe that they went on and lived for a long time after this this is the end yeah and it's it's funny um i was thinking about how we we imagine dinosaurs as dying with the comet yeah that's really the biggest cultural however accurate that is and i think actually probably what happened is if a comet hit it probably killed some of the dinosaurs, but not all of them. Uh-huh. But it caused that sort of warming. Dinosaurs died, some of them from the impact, and a lot of them from the fallout from the impact, yeah. which would have been a scarcity of foliage, a scarcity of water. Mm-hmm. It, I really liked this one a lot. Just, And it's hard to really explain why it was so good. It's just that all of the interactions of the animals are animated with such... They feel really real, and they, it feels like you're peering into the everyday lives of these animals as their world is changing. It also just, to me, feels... When I, th- when I think about classical music, I think about, like, antiquity. I mean, not quite antiquity, antiquity, but, like, I think about the 17th, 18th, 19th century. Sure. That feels so far away, and that feels so divorced from modern science. Mm-hmm. And I think, for me, part of what's cool is that this is an orchestral interpretation Mm-hmm. Of modern science. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, again, it was 1914. They did have modern science in 1914. Uh, in 1940? Um, 1914, when Stravinsky was writing. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then, of true. course, 1940. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. Yeah, so I really liked this one. I got really excited to seeing those dinosaurs. It just made me really happy. It was really cool. It was just like I was a kid again. I, weird that that happened to you with the fairies and this happened to me with the dinosaurs where I was just like I love these little guys like just watching them amble around and like snap at leaves yeah. I was like ah. but I loved these dinosaur boys so then we get what I think is probably in the original cut an actual 15 minute intermission mm-hmm. during which the orchestra seems to go rogue and starts playing jazz yeah while they're um while they're warming up uh, one of the upright basses just like starts plucking his strings and it starts becoming kind of jazzy. Yeah, um, which is neat because it's like we're in 1940. Jazz has been, during the jazz age in the 1920s, has emerged as this like dangerous new hip type of music. That's anti-establishment. That is very tied to Americana. Yep. And I think that there's something interesting about all of all of the composers are European. Yeah. Most of them are Eastern European. Uh-huh. And like, especially in 1940, you're looking at Italy, Germany, and Russia. Uh-huh. Like, that feel very much like the enemy. Mm-hmm. But also, I mean, jazz America. is also the music of um, the African-American community in America. Yeah. And to, to have this kind of jazz sneak into this movie that feels very like we're we're drawing on the traditional european classical tradition mm-hmm. to have this moment of like we're acknowledging current trends currentish but also we're acknowledging non-white music but we're not actually going to feature any of these artists in our animation no. it almost makes me feel like is this what the next fantasia would have been like would they have had a jazz oh, suite how cool would that have been well i think they do rhapsody in blue in fantasia 2000 right, right. which yeah. is 
not a not a black composer but like what if they had done like scott joplin or duke ellington or yeah. billy holiday i guess i guess billy holiday would be vocal and that's not exactly the same thing but there's so much that could have been of a jazz fantasia yeah. it's it's like cool to see this kind of moment where it feels like the the younger orchestra members are like let's play some jazz yeah like, and, let's... It's, and it's definitely exclusively younger members of the orchestra start yeah. goofing around yeah, because then then our master of ceremonies comes back in and is like hum, 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 and like introduce and like interrupts <laughs> shall, them. Shall we return to our scheduled program? Yes. Um, so, but that was nice. I did think that was fun. Mm-hmm. Then they have this moment that I thought was kind of unnecessary because I think that it's just doing the thing that the first one is doing, where they bring out a personification of the soundtrack, mm-hmm. and they're like, "What's a harp look like? What's a violin look like?" Before we get into the second half of the program, I'd like to introduce somebody to you. Somebody who is very important to Fantasia. He's very shy and very retiring. I just happened to run across him one day at the Disney Studios. But when I did, I suddenly realized that here was not only an indispensable member of the organization, but a screen personality whose possibilities nobody around the place had ever noticed. And so, I'm very happy to have this opportunity to introduce to you the soundtrack. All right, come on. That's all right. Don't be timid. Add a soundtrack. Now watching him, I discovered that every beautiful sound also creates an equally beautiful picture. Now look, will the soundtrack kindly produce a sound? Go on, don't be nervous. Go ahead, any sound. (laughs) Well, that isn't quite what I had in mind. And it just kind of felt like this is what you were doing in the first one. I don't know that this is adding anything. I kind of liked it. Um, so they, they invite the soundtrack to come out. Yeah. Um, and then they play music. And as they're playing, the soundtrack takes on different shapes. Yeah, the soundtrack is at first visualized as like a line. And then every time they ask it to play different instruments, it takes a different shape. Yeah. And I, if nothing else, I kind of thought it was cool to think about like the way that a more rounded sound would have that more rounded shape and mm-hmm. a more... A sharper sound might have a sharper look. Reminded me a lot of the scene in um, I don't not not that I necessarily want this podcast to be. This reminded me of other Disney movies, but it really feels like this one was really influential mm-hmm. in terms of the possibilities of animation. But the scene in Ratatouille where he's visualizing what it tastes is like, right? And it's that same type of like the the flute with the really like pattery colors for strawberry yeah. or whatever. Like maybe that scene was a reference to this or, or drawing on this. Yeah. If you've got a 15 minute intermission and people are taking 20 minutes, it's, can, it's like the you got to get back to your seat yeah, after the bathroom break. Yeah, you can watch this, but like we're not going to get to anything. You're not really missing anything. Yeah. yeah, that's fair. That being said, it was probably my least favorite of the yeah. of the shorts. Again, I was kind of interested in the science of it. Sure. So the next one we get is the Pastoral Symphony by Beethoven. And this is kind of a Greco Roman story. We have the first section with a bunch of Pegasus type uh horses floating around and, and enjoying their day uh, and then we have a scene where um a bunch of centaurettes they call them the centaurettes are getting ready so i know that as a kid i would have loved this section mm-hmm. because all of the centaurettes are so different and uniquely designed they're all different colors they're all wearing different fashions they're getting ready they're putting pigeons in their hair they're putting flowers over their boobs yeah. they're um bathing in the water and they have 
every single one is really uniquely designed and colored. It's it's very, um, again, not to point to other Disney movies, but it's uh, reminiscent of the mermaids in Peter Pan. Very much, yeah. And I loved this because each one of them was so different. Mm-hmm. And I, was, I know as a kid I would have been like, which one is my favorite? Like, which one am I going to be? The version that we watched cut out um, one centerette who um, was a pretty ghoulish, racist caricature. Yeah. So we didn't actually see those scenes. Not that I'm upset about that. No, although I have seen them um, in a course I took on animation. We did a day on racist caricatures, and in particular we looked at how the WB reacted to some of their racist characters by putting um, a disclaimer before and how Disney didn't. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, there's no acknowledgement. Out. It's just cut out. So it's like it's, it never happened. And... and even beyond just like cutting cells, they reformatted the screen so that the centerette would have been on the edge mm. of the screen, and instead they're only looking at what's happening. She's sort of she's a pickaninny kind of character, yeah, who is trying to be beautiful like the centerettes, which is gross and condescending and and yeah. shitty in every way. Which I thought was especially egregious, given that. When Bacchus comes in, he's brought in by two, like, African princesses. Yeah, she's she's sort of, like, vaguely African in a way where it's it's not specific to a particular African country. No, but, but she it's... has zebra legs. Yeah. And they look really cool. And they have, like, almost an Egyptian princess updo. Yeah. Like, they're, they're built to be sort of that understanding of, like, the, the regal beauty of Africa. Well, it was nice because... When they came in, it A, it felt like they belonged to this world mm-hmm. where they're kind of sexualized, but all of the centaurettes are kind of sexualized in similar ways. And they're beautiful and regal and there's a dignity to them. Yeah. They're kind of escorting Bacchus in. And then they disappear. And then they disappear. Which sucks because yeah. I was like, they're beautiful. I, they are so cool to look at. Their design is really distinct from the others who are more European coded. Part of me imagines that it would have been very, very difficult to, through all the dancing, Mm-hmm animate the zebra stripes maybe all of that dancing. it also feels kind of like a, a weird segregated thing though yeah. which sucks because it means that their their only role is to escort this white character in yeah as opposed to being when we talked about the mushrooms where you know there's their orientalist elements of it but at the same time it feels like it's trying to appreciate the beauty of a different culture in a way that centers it in nature and yeah. says it's they're also part of this kind of ecology or and this that, that doesn't ecosystem. imagine them as necessarily active agents yeah but that is like oh look at this beautiful thing they're not that othered they're yeah. part of the ecosystem of yeah. that short and in here it feels with the the zebra centaurettes they feel like they're a part of the world mm-hmm. but because their screen time is so limited and because we know that we have the history of this other monstrous caricature that is not simply racist, but incredibly condescending in the way that she's positioned as as longing for the beauty of the European centaurs and is in this position of subjugation. It it sucks because it feels like these characters are, are cool and interesting and they have a distinct design mm-hmm. um, from the others. And it's too bad we don't get more of them. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, though, I don't know if I trust this company to give <laughs> us more of them. Maybe not in 1940. Yeah, not in 1940 especially. Maybe even not now. <laughs> this that was that sucked. But the rest of the short, aside from that, I really thought was beautiful. Yeah. This one that was I thought this one had the best world building in the sense that I really got a sense of this world as being um with the they, they do a bacchanal. It's sort of like they, they're getting ready to go on dates with their boyfriends and to go to this party. I mean, yes, that's definitely what a bacchanal is. 
Uh, well, it's 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 kind of like a 1950s debutante yeah. image, married with a Greek and Bacchanal. That still has that tone of party yeah. that has, like, they're making so much wine. Yeah. So much wine. Mm-hmm. They're courting each other, yeah. but, like, the suggestion is that once they've courted each other, this will yeah. devolve into a Greek Bacchanal. Yeah. And Jeremy, they straight up frolic. They do. <laughs> One thing I will say is although the girls' designs are incredible and really unique and different, the boys are all the same. Exactly the same. Like exactly the same template with different colors. Yeah. And I was very disappointed. I wanted to see centaur boys draped in flowers and shells. Why don't they get to decorate themselves? Because they don't matter. <sighs> but they do. They're secondary to the story. It just makes it feel like none of these guys deserve any of these girls because they haven't put in half the effort. That's true. And I was just like... I want to believe in the centaur love, but all of these boys are so boring. And I don't think they have to be. I wish that the design had been more creative with the male centaurs. Fair. That's my take on the pastoral symphony. <laughs> Better men. Yeah. This one also had a really upsetting shot where um, two centaurs are in love, and then the cupids who are helping them, helping facilitate their romances, close the curtain. And one final cupid decides that he's going to peek through the curtain and the final shot is of his butt making a heart. I thought this was adorable. I hated in it. In that weird Anne Gettys, like, cute little babies doing, like, weird things way. Yeah. I don't want to look at this baby's butt. I, I, I guess this is becoming... But it's all, like, becoming... rosy and little. But it's, it's a butt. I didn't like it. <laughs> I was upset. Because it's also the final image, so you're looking at it of that section. Yeah. You're looking at it for so long as it fades into a heart, and it's, like, connecting this baby's butt with the sex that's happening behind the... Oh, I don't like that. Right? I do not like that. <laughs> Sorry to ruin this for you. No, that baby's butt is... Is pure? Yes. <laughs> no. It's not sexualized. It's just a butt. Butts can... butts can be butts without being sexualized. <laughs> I think that's true, but I didn't like the... the... The connection. The parallel. Sure. Just the image itself, also didn't like. Okay. Disney, if you're taking notes from Beyond the Grave, didn't like that <laughs> shot. I think you can do better. So the next one, um, the second last one, is Dance of the Hours by Ponchielli. And this is a suite that musically represents morning, afternoon, evening, and night. But the animation itself depicts a series of ballets with different animals. Yeah. And they're, of course, drawing on, so the, the orchestral piece is a ballet yeah. that includes those four mm-hmm. uh, movements. It's drawing on the tradition from which it comes. Yeah, definitely. So um, the morning is a bunch of ostriches. One thing I liked about these ostriches was, though, although they were feminized, they still had like a lot of weight and they had their necks were very like fleshy. Yeah. Like when they swallowed, you could see it. Like they weren't dainty. No. I really liked that because it was it was interesting female character design, which I think carries over into the next suite, The Afternoon, which is a series of hippos. And one hippo in particular. I don't know if you recognized the song at all, but it gets parodied as Camp Granada. Yeah. Hello, mother. I did Hello, too, mother. yeah. Like just the whole time I kept playing it over and over <laughs> in my head. And I was like, it's weird that my connection to this classical piece is through yeah a pop parody yeah and it's funny to think about how um really classical music does exist in our in our cultural consciousness and a lot of that is through cartoons and parody so when this uh clip was introduced because it's from an opera gets introduced as from like 
one of the most famous and most recognizable operas. Yeah. And I feel like... I had never heard of it. Yeah, and as someone who I'm at least culturally aware of opera and feel like I can name like 10 operas off the top of my head, I just kept thinking like, but like Puccini's La Boheme or like La Serviata. Like, mm-hmm. I was just like, Carmen? Yeah, it's what? Carmen? what is this going to be? Yeah, I didn't recognize it either. I mean, I recognized the music once I heard it. This is maybe the second most famous image mm-hmm. from Fantasia. The, the hippo with the ballet. The ballet hippo, especially with the alligators that show up towards the end. Mm-hmm. So um, I actually loved this one, mm-hmm. partially because of the hippo scene, where she's a really giant hippo with a little ballet skirt who is performing ballet and i just loved the way that her body moved Mm -hmm. there's so much weight on her that is shifting and fluid and moving in these ways that are elegant in ways that you don't usually see attributed to larger bodies where if last time we talked about how stromboli's largeness is depicted in a grotesque way is animated that way here this this larger character was depicted as beautiful and elegant and desirable and i was so into it i i agree she looks great (laughs) i agree where and it's the kind of thing especially in a cartoon that feels like it should be funny Mm -hmm. it feels like but it feels like after the initial like huh that's a hippo dancing yeah you're just entranced with her Mm -hmm. in the way that the third dance is the elephants but when the alligators show up in the fourth dance, they're not looking at the elephants. They're looking at the bottomists. Yeah. With lust in their eyes. Yeah. I just loved this. There's one scene where she does a twirl or a spin um, or pirouette, I guess. I, I'm not, again, I don't know ballet tech terminology that well. And she just spins and spins and all of her weight kind of gathers at the top of her body. And then it slowly kind of shifts down in a way where it's like, look at the beauty of animation and the, the way that it can depict these bodies. And I just thought, I was like, yeah, she's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Like this hippo is hot and yeah. she knows it. So that's the afternoon section. The evening section is a bunch of elephants blowing bubbles, which I thought was didn't really add much. I thought the bubbles were really pretty. Mm-hmm. I think that there's something about like the floatiness of of that music that sort of lends itself to bubbles. Sure. I, I just thought that the hippo section was kind of doing a similar thing, but better. And then things really kick into high gear in the fourth movement, which is night, where all of these alligators enter this this ballet terrace that they're all dancing on and seem to be just about wooing this hippo which is mm-hmm. maybe a kind way of putting it because it's very unclear this one it's definitely has the predatory undertone of like when they first show up you're like oh no they want to eat them yeah like they want to kill these other animals yeah and so like the wooing is constantly underpinned with this threatening this un- yeah undertone. because they're literally predators yeah the main alligator comes in and banishes away all of the other alligators and proceeds to to attempt to court the hippo in what is kind of confusing in terms of its like sexual dynamics because he seems extremely into her and she seems very flattered she keeps smiling at him but she also keeps running away but then she'll run back and jump into his arms Mm -hmm. so it's like i don't know if this is if he's pestering you with his his sex or if you if this is your kink like if you're into the idea of being chased down by this like predatory person and you guys have kind of negotiated this in a weird way i mean to be fair i think that there's a lot of coquettishness in all of the um all the courtships in fantasia yeah and i think this 
kind of plays into some of those tropes that like I'm moving away because I want you to follow me. It feels very kind of like in Victorian stories or even in opera or things where relationships have to be portrayed more simply. Mm -hmm. The idea that the man pursues and the woman is pursued. And this one was just interesting because there is definitely like a sexual chemistry between these two characters. And there's a bit of humor with the disparity in their sizes because he's very thin and reedy and she's very large and round. But it, it felt more like the comedy was because of the contrast not because she was big and weighing him down yeah no um, he like he loved it yeah and he did love it he, he it was so he, into like, it and he picks her up and like twirls her around above his head like, yeah it's it's not as though it's yeah and then they dance ballet yeah, yeah. It, it's not as though um her size gets in the way of their courtship. No, her size ever. isn't your undesirable. The size is, is like a joke that they're they're so different physically. Mm-hmm. I believe that these guys would have like a torrid romance. Mm-hmm. And I'm really happy for her. Even though this guy seems like kind of a pushy rogue, it also kind of seems like she's they have the same kink, which is that she likes being pursued and he likes pursuing. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, I came up with a theory while I was watching oh, it. Yeah? That this is not the first time this has happened. Oh. That they play this like all the time. Right. This is like their thing. Right. And he'll come in and pretend to be like, oh, I'm wooing you. And she's like, oh, no, 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 don't. Like it reads that way in the movie. I'm not just, um, I'm not trying to say that this dynamic is good or healthy, but it, it, it reads like they're playing, not like this is something that she's actually scared of. Sure. And I buy that, especially given that this is the cycle of day, right? Yeah. It repeats. Yeah. Yeah, um, definitely. Oh, I didn't even think about that. But that actually does furnish my my theory. Yeah. Particularly because there's one scene where she runs away and he's like kind of stunned. He doesn't know what to do. And because he's not following her, she runs back into his arms. <laughs> um, and I was like, there's a real dynamic, deeply sexual relationship going on here. And I'm actually, I think it's really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and so I really, really liked A Dance of the Hours. I thought it was really cool. Um, and I would love to see more characters like Hyacinth Hippo, which is her name when I looked it up, because I thought she was just beautiful and gorgeous and like yes she would have all of the men after her mm-hmm. all of the the crocodiles and i hope that he treats her right and i hope that i'm right that this is a game they're playing and not that he's just a a sex pest <laughs> <laughs> he's not a pepe Le Pew. yeah he's not i hope so but we can only work with the limited context that we have with no dialogue right mm-hmm. so then the last the last section vignette. vignette is night on bald mountain paired with ave maria so night on bald mountain is modest Muskorsky? Muskorsky? And Ave Maria by Franz Schubert. Mm-hmm. So this one is described as being a depiction of the conflict between the profane and the sacred and the triumph of hope over death. And it's basically the devil's throwing a party and he hears church bells and that breaks up the party. At 6 a.m. <laughs> it's like counted the number of church bell chimes and it was 6 a.m. And I immediately was like, what are you doing awake at 6 a.m.? Not Chernobog and his yeah, followers. but that like, makes sense. But like, why are you going to church at 6 o'clock in the morning? <laughs> like, you are fun suckers. <laughs> I genuinely, like, I genuinely had a, an angry reaction. Well, I think this is also because we live next to a church. And so we are constantly hearing the bells. And so when Chernobog was like wincing to every single bell, um, I think I turned to you and I was like, this is us. This is our life. <laughs> We're relating to the devil right now. But this one I think is a, is a nice way to end in the thing. It's it's beautiful. It's got a simple message. It's it's more, it's a little more abstract. But a little, I think it's a little more abstract in that it is, the story it is telling is simpler. Yeah. I actually don't really like anything that comes after the church bells. Mm-hmm. 
I think that the Ave Maria stuff is boring. Yeah. In in terms of animation, like it's yeah. just. It's it kind just of feels like of, they ran out of money a little bit at yeah, this section. It's just a bunch of characters holding candles from a long distance walking yeah. through the forest. And then we get this image of inside of a building going outside. Yeah. One thing I wrote down was, was there's no churches. It's church bells, but we don't actually see a church. No yeah. specific denomination, I guess. Sure. We move instead into this forest. And it, the last part feels to me more like a moving painting than an actual animation. Yeah. And part of me feels like I wonder if it's deliberate to have this slower ending because it's the denouement. It's bringing you out of that that state right. that I mentioned where you're disassociating and you're just listening to the music and feeling things and watching. It's, if it's bringing you back down. Sure. I guess I just, like, I love all the Chernabog stuff. Yeah. I love all of the, like... Chaos dancing. Yeah. Yeah. I think the animation is really beautiful. Yeah, because it's like he's drawing ghosts out of the ground. He's got all of these imps dancing around in his hands. And then at the last minute, he'll turn his hands over and dump them all into the fire. There are some ladies made of fire that then become animals that then become imps. I think that that was... I think that the ladies dancing Mm -hmm. is the arabesque that I was um, thinking of earlier. They're built in that sort of, Mm -hmm. again, sort of caricature not an unkind caricature but caricature of another another culture yeah and i think those are always the most difficult to parse too because on the one hand they can be appreciative but on the other hand they're not necessarily authentic Mm -hmm. and that's a problem too right so i I think that they're just you have to kind of take them as a as a combination of elements that are both good and bad yeah that's really the best way to approach it i think yeah i also just like i love chernabog's design i love the way his wings move when he's like folding back up i love what he looks like in the light when all of a sudden you can almost see the pencil lines mm-hmm. or the the paint lines i yeah. i liked this one but i also think that there's not as much to say about it like we had a lot to say about dance of the hours and and about the tchaikovsky movement i don't really have a ton to say about this one no and maybe that's deliberate for me i didn't realize that Disney was like, don't make them humans because we don't want to, in the dinosaur evolution, yeah. like, we don't want to tie this. But it felt very much to me, like, especially after vehemently stating, like, science is real, it felt like this was like, right, we need to make sure that this audience leaves on a good note. Mm-hmm. Like, I just had a moment where I was like, if this movie came out right now, think about how creationists would respond. Like, this movie would get cancelled by creationists. You think so? I mean, not like... I don't think the Disney company would fold under it, but I think there would be so much conversation about... Like, Maybe I I think I feel like Disney has always been interested in in um, speaking to a very conservative audience, mm-hmm. um, and not even necessarily politically conservative, but there isn't. I think they want to appeal to the most people possible, mm. right? So I don't necessarily view the movie as being pro or anti creational creationist. I view it as Disney being a capitalist who wants to appeal to the broadest audience possible. Sure, the people that believe genuinely in a creationist uh, origin for the world and the people that don't at all and um, I think he wants to appeal to all sorts of people and I guess for me it just like the final word is this like the only time we hear voices human voices are singing Ave Maria yeah and it comes out like at the at the end of it like we've defeated the devil and we are Mm -hmm. Christian once again yeah and I like the power of faith it sours me a little bit for a film that is so for me, or what makes it interesting to me is that it is so invested in like the magic of nature. Yeah. It kind of sours a little bit to end on that note. 
Well, I think it's tough for us to relate to as well because we're not religious people. So our relationship to things like faith are not as spiritual as mm-hmm. some people. And I think that there are probably some people out there who can really appreciate this more than we can. That's fair. There's also ways to marry these two ideas. that You can have sure. a scientific appreciation of the world and also have a deeply religious relationship with the world. Yeah. But it, for me, I think you're right that this one, because I don't have that background, I can't really... It doesn't do much for me. Mm. But I also think that the beauty of an anthology story is that there's kind of something for everybody. Yeah. And would a really religious creationist-oriented person not get as much out of the dinosaur one that I got sure. out of, that I was like screaming because I was so happy about these dinosaurs? Yeah. I don't know. And maybe that's the benefit of having an anthology tale is that there are people who will absolutely love one thing that will hate another or just not get it at all. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Because the world is full of different types of of people who believe different things and want different things and like different things. Yeah. Well, we're going to see a lot more of that in the coming days. Yeah, there's a bunch of anthology ones kind of in the the first group, right? Yeah. um, We've got two more stories and then we've got five, six anthologies in a row. Uh, I'm also interested to see the, like, tour of South America films and to see what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I feel like I'm more actively tense about Disney representing any non-American cultures, but... I I feel the same way. I just... The Three Caballeros was something I owned as a kid. Okay. I don't remember liking it that much. Like, I didn't watch it as frequently, I think partially because it was um, an anthology film and I didn't really care for anthologies as a kid. I feel like I like them more as an adult than I do as as a kid. Yeah. Because it's interesting to think about these individual shorts mm-hmm. um, rather than sustaining a conversation about one movie. Yeah. Um, no, and and you're right. It does, uh, especially for Fantasia, feels very much like going to an art gallery. Yeah. Um, and I like, and I felt that way the whole way through where I was like, this feels like it's appropriate to talk during the film yeah. and like, think about what's going on and like, oh, I really, I'm really responding to this image. I think that's a really great point. The idea that a movie like this is not necessarily designed to be watched in sober silence, that you can talk about it and you can, um, you know, lean over to your partner and say, um, oh, I really like this or this is making me think about this in the same way that when you're looking at a painting, you can talk about that painting with mm-hmm. someone that you've gone to a museum with. And yeah. I think that that's a cool way to make Fantasia a little more accessible. And and Fantasia does the work of making art galleries a little more accessible. Yeah. It does the work of saying, like, look, this fun, cartoony thing that you like makes high art mm-hmm. more accessible. So for me, um, this project so far, um, we watched three. How would you rank them in terms of enjoyment, would you say? I mean, Pinocchio's at the bottom. Uh, for me, too. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It... I think I would still I... put Snow White first. But I don't know that Snow White is a better movie than Fantasia. I think Fantasia is a more ambitious movie. Snow White has more rewatch factor. Yes. Snow White, because it is a storytelling film, feels like the kind of thing that like I can't wait to show my niece and nephew. Yeah. Whereas Fantasia, I'm like, well, maybe my parents will watch Fantasia with me at some point. Fantasia is the type of thing I probably want to watch once every five years. Sure. Snow White is something I could watch like easily once uh, like more than time more than once in a year yeah it's the kind of thing that if somebody said hey do you want to watch snow white i would be like yeah yeah but if somebody asked me if i wanted to watch fantasia i would have to think about it yes and partially it's because i think that i would rather watch the sections of fantasia that i liked the best Mm -hmm. on their own the the framing device of the orchestra is nice and it is it is nice to watch it all the way through i think Mm -hmm. that's a good way to watch it the first time but if I was going to watch it again, I would probably just watch the shorts individually. Yeah. 
That being said, I, I think that Fantasia is probably the most ambitious movie that we've watched yet. I'm excited to watch Dumbo now because I don't remember that one at all. Oh, I love Dumbo. And it's it's the one that comes right after two really, amb- three really ambitious movies, I would oh. say. As much as we didn't like Pinocchio, I think that we can't deny that it was ambitious artistically. I'm, I'm really excited to see what Dumbo does. Final thoughts? Final thoughts? Oh, my end of episode zinger? Yeah, zing us. Um, zing us a song, you're the zinger man. Okay, well that's good. <laughs> Why don't we do that one? You gotta be on the hook for the zinger sometimes. All right. All right, so on that note, we will see you next time for Dumbo. Bye, everybody. Bye.